Hello, welcome to uh, yeah another pharmacy and practice podcast webcast type thing. Got a very very interesting pharmacist on today. We've got the chief pharmacist from Turning Point, Graham Parsons. Graham, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, yeah, yeah. My name's Graham Parsons. Uh, as Jonathan says, I'm the chief pharmacist from Turning Point. Um, I've been in that post since uh, 2015. Um, previously working in a range of jobs from medicines management or medicines optimization within a CCG. Uh, I've also worked for an LPC, Devon LPC, as a healthy living pharmacies lead for a year. Uh, spell on the ACMD between 2010-2013, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And um, previous to all those posts, I also worked in uh, retail pharmacy for a number of years post-qualification, uh, mainly in the uh, 1990s. So, uh, and thank you for inviting me, Jonathan, to your uh, webcast. Yeah, no, pleasure. It's good to, good to talk to you. And we've already had a good old blether beforehand. Um, we have. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a really unfair question. You look extremely young, but what what year did you uh, what year did you qualify in? Well, you know, you've got you've got the front view of me here, which is good, so you don't see my uh, my my growing bald patch or double crown, as my children call it. So um, I I qualified or I I, I graduated in 1990, mm -hmm. um, and I uh, went on the registry in 1991. So I'm 51 at the moment coming on uh, 52 so uh yeah. rel relatively old but relatively young if you can uh unpick that have you just before we go into your current role because i'm very interested especially given um you know the current situation with the pandemic and so on has 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 had consequences um in your space as you know but have you enjoyed your time as a pharmacist so would you do it again would you would you choose pharmacy again I, I think I would choose pharmacy again I mean I've I've had moments like uh, I suppose like any professional where I've uh, where there's been doubt that you've made the right choice um, I don't think anybody goes through a whole vacation where they where they feel comfortable with their with their profession through the whole period of time and when you've been in the profession for 30 years I think you raise those uh, raise those doubts certainly at the end of my uh, retail uh, career with a corporate body I was doubting whether pharmacy was was for me and we didn't talk about this previously but I, I actually undertook a qualification in financial planning so um, you know I, I spent some periods of time working in fi in financial planning on a part-time basis with with my pharmacy as well um, and, I, and that's that's got me interested in financial management actually and how how businesses run um, uh, but one thing that that period out and also working on lo locums, it, it focused my mind that I actually had a passion for substance misuse and substance use mm -hmm. management um, because I, I went from a leafy suburb in, in Plymouth to working in, in some of the most deprived areas in the southwest. And it was at that point when I started working with these clients that I that I started to have an, have an interest in the subject. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on your age, Jonathan, but back there, I don't know if you remember, they were pink scripts. And I remember working into walking into a pharmacy on day one and seeing a pink hospital instalment script and thinking, well, what the what what the devil is this? And I didn't know how to how to manage it. And from working in that particular pharmacy um, in in Plymouth, I, I gained a really interest in it, in it. I took additional courses, took the RCGP qualification, the Royal College of General Practitioners, and I'm now a trainer for them. I also did a diploma in community pharmacy from Cardiff, which which helped to kind of I suppose, um, give me a bit more knowledge around evidence-based medicine. Because um, I think in the late 80s, it wasn't a big thing in universities. You still, I'm not uh, decrying the, the, the education I got from the University of Bath, but I think as you move on and you start to do other things, it, it, it helps to form a bit of uh, foundation work for your, for your continuing education. And it was, it was from that and developing a love and a spe specialism in an area. I always wanted to specialize in an area. I didn't know where, where, where it would be um, that, that I started to, to uh, I suppose, fall in love with pharmacy again. 
And in my period out of specialisms between 2013 and around 2015, I missed it. And that's when I realized that, you know, as soon as an opportunity came up in Turning Point, I, I, I joined again because um, I love this area of work. I'm a, I'm a prescriber as well. So um, I do clinics occasionally. And, um, and, and yes, so I think the answer to your question is yes, I would. I think you've got to have the right opportunities. You've got to look for the right opportunities. They very rarely present themselves in your lap. So yeah. anybody out there who's a younger pharmacist, you know, you've got to ask questions. You've got to show that you're interested in a particular field and you've got to approach people in that field, key people and look to look to engage in it. So, um, yeah, I think I, I would. And interestingly enough, my she'll help me if she hears me. My daughter, who's sitting in the other room now, her best friend's doing pharmacy at Bath. And um, I said, you know, I've said to her that I think it is still a good profession to go in. You've just got to take the right opportunities and find what you love in 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 the particular field and go for it. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, the reason I asked that question was because you, you know, you've got when I looked you up, you've got you've got loads of letters after your name, and and to your credit, you've clearly well, you've just described what you've done, but you've clearly throughout your career really invested in yourself, and I I just think that's a really good example actually for for for, for the youngsters coming through, you know, and um, there's also some one sort of slightly controversial. It's not a question; it's just a comment. I think a lot of us go through that, myself included, um, that path through community pharmacy and then come out of it mm. and i think there's i think there's something there for for the profession in inverted commas and maybe the professional body to consider around how how do we make that uh community experience uh, a lot richer and you know how do we add depth to the career opportunities there but yeah that's for another time that's not why i got you on <laughs> <laughs> So I won't start talking about that. As you, as you, you, you probably worked out now. I can ramble on for for many, many, a, many a minute. So I will. Oh, it's fine. I, I'll just. I won't, I'll, give, I'll, I won't just, give a response to that. I've got, <laughs> I've got a buzzer here. I'll just shut you up. I'll just shut you up. Um, so yeah, your current, your current job is um, subsuspicious. And to set this up, the reason, well, one of the reason I got you on was to say hello and get to know you, which is, which has been great. But also, so much has changed because of. The pandemic and i think we've seen this across the piece haven't we um you know we've had a lot just in in pharmacy in general we've had lots of legislative changes and you know really unprecedented stuff like for example the pre-reg exam has been postponed all this stuff has been happening um access to uh, partial access to the records as well in scotland i mean the, that that question has been rumbling on for decades um and i know uh, a good friend and colleague alec mckinnon uh, I think he said he would retire whenever, whatever that got over the line, and he has just retired, so he'll be, he'll be happy to see that. Um, a lot of a lot, a long way to go with that, but it's a, it's a great start. So in substance misuse, there've been some quite interesting changes as well. Um, I mean, we covered a story, uh, we've covered a number of stories. So the uh, the drug death deaths task force in Scotland uh, put out a six point plan. Um, I'll maybe come back and ask you a bit about that. But also the, the one that caught my eye was not in your patch, but um, I think you are involved in similar activities in your patch in the southwest of England, was around the slow release uh, injected buprenorphine, the Buvidal um, okay. move. Have you got any thoughts on that? So this is basically just for the benefit of the, the watchers and the, and the listeners, that that's slow release um, buprenorphine preparation that gets injected, I believe, once a month or fortnightly from memory? Once a month or once a week. So it's once weekly. A week, that's right. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so yeah. carry on. Have, have you got any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, at the turning point of, of being at the, at the forefront of this, we've we actually uh, has piloted the use of Buvidal. Um So we have two sites: uh, one site in London and one site in 
uh, Leicester that have been using Bouvedal since last July. So, you know, I was, I've, I've always been interested in looking at, um, I suppose, expansions to our formulary. Unlike something like cardiovascular medicine, uh, substance misuse formularies are very limited, especially with opiate substitution treatment. So in effect, mm -hmm. we've got uh, methadone, we've got oral buprenorphine. Um, in some areas, we have injectable uh, dimorphine pharmaceutical dimorphine. We have methadone injections in some areas. Um, and there, there's other op options, limited options, such as slow-release oral morphine, which is often used as a specialist intervention, but very rarely. So I've always been interested in looking at an expansion of, of, of our formulary, and I think Bouvedal gave us the opportunity for that. So we, we've certainly been using it in two of our sites, um, and it, it, our, our um, findings are that it's uh, it's it's and I think this is where we're going with it. It will be a niche product. It will be a product that that will be uh, useful to uh, some clients. Uh, the cohort of clients that we found that is particularly useful for are the clients that have been coming in and out of treatment. So the clients that are kind of the rolling door um, kind of clients that are hard, difficult to engage um, because the evidence base is there to support that while somebody is on an OST, preparation so an opiate substitution treatment preparation they've they've got a reduced risk of drug related death so a lot of our work is all about managing risk managing and understanding risk so we think Bouvedal has has a has a real role in that so we've been administrating at our services at two sites the seven day formulation we have a window each side of uh of 72 hours so people can still come in if they miss their dose so you've got the opportunity for that and the monthly preparation is uh has got a window of seven days each side so there's flexibility in terms of how you can uh, how you can administer a dose and and i think it just gives us uh it gives us a further option i don't see it replacing oral buprenorphine totally I don't see a time when that's going to be uh, the place. I mean, there's there's a couple of impacts on that or reasons for that. One, not all clients want an injection, and some clients have moved away from an injection, and that's why they like the oral doses, and they they want to move away from that kind of environment. So to actually ask a client who doesn't want an injection to have that injection is is a big issue. Um, the third, the, the second issue is is the cost. It still remains um, a costly intervention at. Uh, at eight pounds a day. Now, with the recent increase in the price of, of, of generic buprenorphine, and you stick on the cost of supervised consumption and dispensing, the, the disparity between the two of those interventions has has, has narrowed significantly. But there's still, there's, there still remains a, a cost impact on that. Um, the third thing that we've got to be careful of, and uh, I know service user groups have, have talked about this, and I know uh, the reasons that one of the reasons we, we had our initial conversation was was around the use of Bouvedel in secure environments was informed consent. You know, yeah. clients still need, and I'm, I'm very strong with it and, and have a firm opinion on this, and certainly in our secure environment in Leicester, you know, clients need to give informed consent to have the treatment. No client should be forced to have a particular um, intervention uh, forced upon them and I know in in the secure environments uh, prior to this you know there, there has been issues with the fact that methadone has often been the only option due to cost and this seems to have, have, have switched completely that you know there, there's there's the debate in some secure environments whether everybody should be getting Bouvedal totally against that it should still be it should still be a choice um, but yeah in, in summary um, it's the injectable formulation once a month or once a week useful intervention i see it as a as an intervention for a for a for a limited uh, a, a limited cohort of clients particularly the clients that are uh, that are in and out of treatment um uh, you know in general and uh, yeah we we wait to see how we uh, how we move forward with that does that answer your question or have you got any further questions on 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 Bouvedal? um well do, do the do this i suppose yeah the you, I was going to ask about patient choice, but you've covered that, and that that is a that was a concern that I'd seen uh, anecdotally on online. To be honest, we, we've seen yeah. some pushback on that. Do the do the service users that go on it like it? In general, yeah. I mean, we've got a we've we've. 
we've written a paper when I say we uh, a number of clinicians around the country that have been using it in pilot sites and we're just looking to uh, to publish that at the moment so we will um, once that's published I'll let you know and uh, obviously readers can can have access to that but in general satisfaction is is high I think with the qualitative interviews we had around eight out of ten people um, were, were quite happy with it and felt that they had a it had a significant impact uh, it had a significant impact on their life I mean certainly in turning point we're only talking about a cohort of around 35 to 40 at the moment so it's a limited sample size but in general most most people are, are you know are really positive about it and the thing that they they particularly like is the is, is the fact that they don't have to go and this is I think this this will lead on to further debate. They don't have to go to pharmacies daily and they don't have that kind yeah. of mechanism in place where uh, where they have to do things at, at, at certain times and in certain ways. And that again comes back to the risk management strategy, you know, and, and as clinicians, we have to we have to understand that you have to you have to judge the risk of somebody not being on a prescription against them being on a prescription, but having less contact. Um, but interestingly enough, COVID-19 has, has led, to, led us to a point where we're doing more online and particularly telephone consultations now. Mm. Now, they are not they're not the nadir you know they're not the uh they're not the panacea they're not the panacea for for services because you still need to see clients you still need to have that 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 involvement with clients and you still need to have uh testing for clients as well although again i'm not uh i'm not a zealot for for testing i think that's uh that that can be a a, a blunt tool blunt clinical tool as well so uh yeah i mean in answer to your question yeah clients generally do like it Sometimes clients get local reactions at their sites, but you rotate the sites. But in general, they 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 like it, and they like the fact that they feel normal. That's, mm -hmm. that's certainly come out in the qualitative interviews, and they like the fact that they, they 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 get the sense that they feel that they have control back in their life, and they're not controlled by their medication. They're more they 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 can manage their life, and they have a better quality of life. Sure, and I I, I want to ask this next question in a positive way so you know that any change in the market uh, where a business operates is going to have an impact isn't it um mm, yes i suppose from from your point of view and, and i know you do have you, you know you're in a position of of influence here so 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 may, may wish to be diplomatic but and i understand that but if you were running a community pharmacy how would you position your business looking into the future around the whole substance misuse piece shall we say yeah i mean that's that's a complex uh discussion isn't it really in terms of where we're going and previously i've um i think i talked to you about doing doing a lecture at the pharmacy show back in 2018 there's obviously concern around the so-called amazon model and where we're moving towards that and you know mm -hmm. there there is a uh, there are are a concern in some areas that that model will be will be pushed more. Uh, we will move more towards that with COVID nineteen. You know, there's there's certainly an upsurge in the advertising of internet pharmacies on on social social media. That's more my feeling. I've not done any research on that, but I think that's where we're going. And, and whether pharmacy likes it or, or or not, I think that's where where it's pushing towards. So we you know community pharmacy needs to respond to that. So they need to be looking for models uh, to, to to support the professionalism and the clinical approach um, to the services that they're delivering. And I suppose in substance misuse, as I've said at the pharmacy conference, substance misuse services will not lend themselves towards a total internet pharmacy model and an Amazon model. So I think it's important that you're engaging with your local providers and your, your substance misuse commissioners. You know, I recognize that supervised consumption and needle exchange are the, the kind of two pillars for substance misuse services you know the extended services and and the other pillars are the prescriptions that you're you're getting through the door and mm -hmm. that has been impacted recently within turning point you know we we've we've uh, committed to continue to pay supervised consumption figures on a rolling six month historical basis um and i know lpcs are certainly um uh, pleased that we've we've committed to that but we will see a day 
and we've committed that till September that we, we need to move back into into services and to standard services. So LPCs need to be um, aware of that. So they need to understand the supervised consumption and needle exchange, and they need to know that you know we will move towards a, a more normal model. And with dispensing as well, you know, there was major concerns that we move people from supervised consumption daily to weekly and fortnightly collection. Now that was supported by Public Health England and, and that was um, after a suitable risk assessment, obviously, that was supported to, um, to, to mainly run with the government guidance for social distancing and people staying indoors. Um, but there, were, there was a lot of angst about that, certainly from our clinicians and certainly from community pharmacies as well, because that, that impacted on the, on, the, on the bottom line as well. But I think it's important that they engage with services. It's important that when we have national hep C testing, which we're hoping will come in, certainly at a recent meeting that I went to around quarter three, quarter four this year, maybe ambitious, but hopefully we'll be in a place to do that. Uh, they need to engage with that and fully support that. And we need to be, you need to be working with your local commissioner on additional services. We talked about uh, Turning Point now, and we're looking to introduce naloxone uh, supply services through community pharmacies. We're currently trialing an online training in, in Somerset, and we're looking to, <coughs> excuse me, we're looking to expand that to Wakefield as well. So that's one particular area we can, you know, expand into. And certainly one service that we're, uh, we're, we're, we'll be working with from October next year, from October this year, we're looking to introduce that service as well and also uh, introduce alcohol IBAs. I'm particularly interested in alcohol IBAs because in the days when I was LPCing, <coughs> it's an, it's an evidence-based service that can be delivered quite quickly in a brief intervention that is uh, that we can pay supported by the evidence base so i think we need pharmacies need to understand the pillars of their current services but they need to expand beyond that and that's going to be difficult in terms of the financial modeling but uh, uh, you know i'm hoping there are are some some opportunities as we uh, as we move forward does that mm -hmm. answer your question absolutely yeah no it's really good why Given the proliferation um, and the and I think the excel well looks like the acceleration of the proliferation and distribution of naloxone, and also given the clinical safety of naloxone, I mean I would argue that the biggest risk with naloxone is not giving it, isn't it? Um, yes. At, at times, you know. So, with all that in mind, why why do you think drug deaths are still so high, Graham? Uh, well, that, uh, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, you know, Public Health England have, have done a number of reports on this, and there was a, a comprehensive report, a review of drug-related deaths back in 2015. And I'm not as up-to-date with the Scottish <coughs> system, but I know they've, they've done a lot of reviews on this as well. And I, th I think there's, 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 there's many impacts, um, there's many factors that impact on drug-related deaths. We have an aging cohort at the moment, so we have a, a cohort of heroin users that are getting older, but still that are still using. Uh, there's mm. polydrug use, which which has a significant uh, <clears throat> impact on uh, on on drug-related deaths. With that aging subgroup as well, we have an increase in comorbidities, so significant comorbidities, which start to have an have an impact on it as well, and. Um, Again, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too political, but we have a drug service that is uh, that similar to community pharmacy has been impacted on quite significantly. So certainly between 2014 and 2018, we saw a fall in funding of between 30 and 40 percent in the substance misuse field. <clears throat> so that's moved us towards certainly a, a, a less intensive model. Um, mm -hmm. A model that can't be supported with uh, with with intensive interventions. So that that kind of um, less well supported model and the other impacts, um, you know, a factor need to be factored in. You know, we don't know where we would have been without naloxone. So even though Scotland has highest drug related deaths um, in 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 Europe, we need to think about the position that Scotland may have been in without naloxone. So you know you've got to look at it a bit more uh, a bit more expansively as well. So so in summary, naloxone is a good thing. 
it does reverse opiate overdoses. There, there is minimal adverse effects to it, but there is a lot of, lot of things that impact on drug-related deaths from the age of the patients, from the drug use, polypharmacy, increased comorbidity, um, down also to the funding of drug services, which has impacted on the, the, the elements of the intervention and the type of interventions that, we, that we're able to give. But I'd certainly, certainly in, in, in England, uh, well, Scotland, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd look, uh, if, if people kind of look at the Public Health England review from 2015, it, it's, it's very comprehensive and in looking at the reasons why we have increased drug-related deaths isn't able to give a definitive answer because it's yeah. multifactorial. I think I made the, maybe I conflated a couple of issues in that question. I kind of, I framed it, I framed drug deaths around naloxone and that's, mm. that's probably oversimplifying it. And that's probably me being a pharmacist about it because I'm focusing on the drug, aren't I? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think, I wonder, is there something, I wonder, is there something there for community pharmacy to, even locally understand the wider healthcare system and understand, you know, try and think a bit more expansively and how a given community pharmacy population or hinterland fits into the wider system and what value you can add in that space. Yeah. What about what about alcohol? I I personally have concerns about alcohol. I mean we all love a drink. We've got this really weird uh, relationship with alcohol. It's a really, like, without being a part, you don't have to preface this by setting it up by saying I'm not a party pooper. I'm not. I've enjoyed, no. I've enjoyed a drink over the years. And um, as I get older, I do it more and more in moderation. But where do you think that relationship with alcohol comes? Is it, is it, is it the marketing or, um, or, or do you have a view on on that relationship that we have with alcohol? Well, you, I, I, a few things there. You 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 won't be surprised to hear that alcohol is a very complex area as well. And to answer it in mm. in, in 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 this short uh, a discussion, you know, it, it's something that we, we're going to be unable to do. My relationship with alcohol, you know, I'm not going to get too personal here, but uh, some of my colleagues from university and have known me throughout my life will, will know that I've I've had a relationship with alcohol as well. And and funny enough, you know, we're 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 at the stage now, certainly in lockdown, where there's concerns expressed by professionals and we, we cover it every week in the Public Health England meetings about what is happening to referrals. So we have the situation at the moment where, where uh, you know, referrals are starting to increase but they've been impacted on the fact that people you know, want to isolate. They don't want to kind of be out, and so we we don't know where we're going to go when we come out of this uh, this this area. Personally, you know, I mean, I'm, my my drinking increased during lockdown, and and I've recognised that, and um, now I've taken a conscious decision only to drink uh, a couple of nights a week. So personally, it's impacted on me, and I think that is a concern. So, I'd firstly ask people listening to the podcast think about your drinking and what you're doing, and 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 whether your drinking has increased. Obviously, the government guidelines now are, are, are different. We're talking about 14 units um, a week, and that's very much linked to the to the uh, particularly the physical health health effects and cancer. Uh, that we've got good evidence that uh, there's an increased risk of uh, certain type of cancers, six type of cancers linked with even uh, moderate drinking. So that's where that, that public health guidance came from. I think in terms of pharmacy, we talked about drug-related deaths early on. It still surprises me that clients do not see the relationship between alcohol and heroin and gabapentinoids and the, the sedative, the depressant-type drugs. So I think pharmacies have got to talk about uh, with their clients with needle exchange and when they're talking to clients, the risk of, of, of polypharmacy and the depressant drugs and just give, give clients gentle uh, reminders about that. I think pharmacy have a role in in education, and whether that's uh, whether that's not as an enhanced service, whether it's just education around these messages, or it's actually education um, as part of a, a paid for um, alcohol intervention and brief advice service, which is evidence based, based and can be delivered uh, in pharmacies. So, you know, I think pharmacy has a role. I think they have an expanded role. A lot of this is around harm reduction and, and, and messaging. 
particularly around the 14 units and giving simple messages like saying you know if you are drinking make sure you have three or four days a week when you're when you're when you're not drinking um I, I, you know, I'm not a party. I'm not a party pooper as well. People will drink. Some people will take a choice to to uh, drink to excess. And again, when I run the training for the alcohol IBAs and we look at audit C and some people will say, you know, I've I don't drink much and I've come at as a high score. And I'll often say, well, when you do drink, do you drink large amounts? And they say yes. And I say, well, that's linked to risk around your acute use of alcohol. So it's the it's, it's the messaging around uh, around these areas that, that that need to be given. But again, alcohol, alcohol treatment has been has, has been hit by funding cuts as well. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're fighting a battle uh, with that. And it, it often runs that alcohol treatment is the Cinderella to <laughs> to opiate services. And um, it's about how the challenge for services is how we engage with clients, how we engage with clients who are dependent and how we engage with clients who are who are drinking to to higher risk and increasing risk levels and how we deliver services for those clients. Because it's a bit like OTC and prescription medicine misuse. Um, A lot of clients who are in that kind of area of concerns, uh, whether it's that or alcohol use, often don't want to engage with the traditional drug services. So we have a challenge in our ourselves about how we how we manage that I suppose the biggest challenge with COVID is is how you how you do um, a detox so as you've said that you know uh, COVID has changed the landscape on how we deal with things you know we're talking about our alcohol reviews now being done at distance um, mm-hmm. so actually having carers to support that giving out larger amounts of medicine but again we have to we have to um, assess the risk of that how we manage that risk because if it's a particularly risky client um, we have to understand about whether we manage that or whether we give clients advice around safe reductions as well so yeah. a lot of the and again public health england have and sorry this is very english focused jonathan um, no, public health fine, england have, re- have released some guidelines on on safer drinking and how to do a um, a, a reduction uh, so, for example, if somebody's on 50 units a week, looking to decrease that by 10% a week or even 10% a day, depending on the amount, or even one to two units a day. So even if somebody can't participate in uh, an alcohol detoxification, a medication, medically supported alcohol detoxification, we can give people advice on how to reduce their alcohol safely. Um, one thing one thing that I always say in my training and one thing that I will reiterate on this, if you have a dependent drinker coming into your pharmacy under no circumstances, tell them to stop drinking completely because there are obviously the risks of uh, severe and acute alcohol withdrawal syndrome, uh, syndrome, which includes things such as delirium treatments, which we will be aware of. And also long-term consequences, which is such as Wernicke Korsakoff syndromes, which is uh, which can cause to, can lead to long-term institutionalisation. So you know we have to be mindful that if somebody is drinking dependently, never if they've one take-home message in this, never tell someone who's drinking dependently to give up completely. They need to mm-hmm. do it safely, and they need to do it um, carefully. And often that message is important because you may get some people coming in who have just had the last resorts so if you can ask somebody that if they're going to do that don't give it up completely but slowly reduce your alcohol drinking even 10 percent a week or um, even more dependent on you know the amount that's being drink drank but if somebody's drinking to levels of, of of 30 units for example they can they can reduce their drinking by two you know one to two unit a day and slowly bring it down even if it's bringing it down to a level that they were you know they were previously at and there's plenty of support online from alcohol concern and uh, various other agencies to to support that I think, so that, that's a I bit of a rambling rambling answer there jonathan but hopefully you're able to pull some things from that i think i think for such a complex area to your credit i think you've covered a lot of ground there you covered you know quite mild drinking uh mild is that is that is that i don't know if you can categorize drinking as my low level drinking well, nice nice does nice actually mild moderate and yeah. severe yes because okay. <laughs> i think i'd like to think we you know you or i are our social drinkers we try to stick within the you know the recommendations and so on and so forth so i think you've covered right from that end of the spectrum through to really harmful um drinking and and your message there about not stopping uh, someone who's dependent on on alcohol 
is is very useful and also signposting is useful as well and i'll put some stuff in the show notes but but also sorry can i sorry can i just come in there i mean the important issue as well is 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 people that are using opiates or other drugs as well you know i think Mm -hmm. pharmacies have a have an integral role in pointing out that polypharmacy is significant and if you look at drug related deaths across the whole um estate you know scotland england northern ireland wales you will see that the majority of drug related deaths i think it's 80 80 to 90 percent of poly polypharmacy deaths it's very rare you get a drug related deaths linked to linked to one drug use so mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to 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 discuss that even little things like you know if somebody's going out at a weekend and and using um cocaine and alcohol cocaine and alcohol leads to the formation of cocoethylene which is kind of a long acting um a compound of, of of cocaine and that has been uh that, that has been noted to be a significant issue in terms of cardiovascular deaths uh stroke um heart related deaths and um and also liver liver issues so it's i suppose it's the issues around alcohol as itself as a as a single drug and the impact on that but also when when alcohol is used as a as as a drug as part of a polypharmaceutical um Mm. hedonistic plan i'm i mean yeah no that's really interesting i'm i mean i'm interested in uh quite interested in nudge theory and all that kind of stuff and um one of the nudges that i found quite hilarious was whenever i don't know if you remember when um uh, the government started charging for or the, i think they made retailers charge for plastic bags and i remember yeah. i was working in community pharmacy at that stage it must have been four or five years ago and um, i remember in the run-up to christmas you know the legs people would go when they bought handfuls armfuls of christmas shopping the lengths they would go to not buy a 5p plastic bag was remarkable and yeah that that, that no it was and i was like i'm gonna just buy a bag like you've got you know you're they're going out of the shop like this um and it got i mean that really got me on to nudge theory because i thought you know it's a very low it's not a prohibitive cost um it really had quite a profound impact and we saw that impact by the by the number of literally by the number of bags we were using went down by about 90 percent so flip that nudge theory into uh into alcohol and then and and you you know how do you how do you and i purchase alcohol well you go into the supermarket you you go past your little section of fruit and veg you go to your meat and and what have you and then you know the final two aisles you, you get hit with the biscuits which is a nightmare for me and then you get hit with the sweeties and the crisps and then you, you say no to all that and then the final like wonderful aisle is full of a myriad of uh, of alcoholic drinks and mm. i just wonder i don't know what your view is i just wonder is that without being because i never you know i never like to sort of take away patient choice and that's what i quite like about or or choice in, in the population. So that's why I quite like about nudge. It's always, it remains your choice. But mm. I wonder what your, I wondered what your view was on that. And is there more we can do around the kind of ritualistic um, uh, purchase of alcohol as well, really, and, and how shops are set up? Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is you, you're getting into into areas that are, I suppose, beyond my expertise now. Um, I, I think there there are things that we uh, that we can do. I mean, it's a political hot potato, isn't it? You know, we we could mm-hmm. we could spend the day talking about minimum unit pricing, and I know in Scotland this is uh, this is a big issue that uh, I think has gone through the courts now, hasn't it? But I don't think it's been introduced yet um but this is this is looking at you know making uh, making a product or giving a product a certain price to limit use if you think about tobacco you know the only reason that we're at the lowest levels of tobacco use at the moment or one of the only reasons is is the pricing yes we have restrictive practices now about where you can smoke and that has input put it in the latter stage but pricing is a is a big impact and you know people that will uh, will get really hit by um, minimum alcohol pricing are people that are drinking a lot I mean if you're drinking within your limits it would it's not a major increase um, on, on your on your expenditure so I, th- I think there's a there's a there's a uh, minimum unit pricing is is uh, is something to look at if you look at alcohol policy where you can buy alcohol from 
is a big issue in the UK and also the times that you can buy it. I mean, you could get alcohol at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you can go to a, yeah. a supermarket and get it. You can go up the, yeah. um, the co-op where we are. You can buy it. So I think there is uh, there is something around where you can purchase it from. And, and when we look at alcohol policies, that is an area that is that is looked at um, that is looked at uh, as, as well. There is a big cultural issue issue around it and uh, a psychological approach to it. But again, that's uh, I could tell you all about the medicines and about how to manage it. But it's 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 not within my remit or, or my thoughts to give an, a, a given opinion or viewpoint on that. Other no, than the fact that I do uh, that I do support minimum unit pricing. Um, yes, it will in, it will increase the uh, the amount uh, I, I spend. But, uh, you know, there, there is evidence um particularly from canada which i think is an equivalent population to look at the minimum unit pricing does impact on the uh on the amount of alcohol that is consumed in a population so i'm certainly supportive of that but you know if we talk about shopping and the availability of it i am a bit like you i think i think people need uh need choice um but uh you know i mean when uh, again i'm not going to ask when you you know what age you are Jonathan but certainly when I grow up it was it was more restrictive to get alcohol and you know you used to have to go down the off license <laughs> to get yeah. alcohol well, and pubs weren't, a, a, weren't open a, all day. That's a good point because I believe I grew up in Northern Ireland and I believe um, the off license bit has to be in a separate um, building to the supermarket so that's you know it's little things like that just you know I just but as you say, it's a political hot potato. One book I'm going to recommend, though, um, for readers or listeners or viewers now, um, a book called, I think it's called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray. Um, and she she was, um, she had a career in London and similar, you know, not, not I'm not saying we've got a problem, Graham, we're, we're going a bit deep here, but she she woke up and realized that she had a problem and and i just wonder how many pharmacists or or pharmacy team members could maybe relate to that you know maybe just drinking a wee bit too much and mm. and she reined it in but when she, the interesting bit was when she reined it in she found it really hard to rein it in actually and she suggests that maybe you should try just to see how easy it is um and and it can be quite illuminating she also goes into all the rituals around alcohol and how we do you know drink pushing and you know and social events and stuff like that and no, I just rounds. That. So, exactly <laughs> yeah. rounds. i know we've all been yeah. there we've all been there but uh anyway I, I think the other the, the other the other thing adrian charles in, in uh he, he did some uh some programs on alcohol and he he, he kind of got a uh, you know a road to Damascus awakening of his alcohol use through those uh, through those through the conversations he had and through the discussions with with liver specialists he had um, certainly you know I mean I would say that you know do an audit on yourself do an audit see which is three questions you can get them online see where you are if you're five or above do a full audit and again, when we do the training for the alcohol IBAs, we, we say to pharmacists, you know, so, or, or pharmacy staff, and they say, well, some people don't want to change. Some people give the wrong answers. They, they're not given a truthful answer. And that's just where they particularly are in treatment at the moment. You can't force people to give a right answer. You know, you can sit in a clinic and say, oh, you're taking your, your, uh, your statins. And people will say yes when, you know, we know that compliance is poor. I prefer, you know, I used to ask the question, when was the last time that you uh, that you didn't take your statin? Which I think gives a better insight. I think it's better insight into medicines optimization to say, oh, can you remember the last time that you didn't take your medication? And then you can start a conversation with that. In the same way, audit is good to get people thinking about it. And, uh, you know, certainly, and I'm happy to share it, there's a little device, a little tool that we use, which is just a simple one-page NHS tool, which looks at what a drink is, what a unit is, and what you could potentially do to reduce your drinking if you're in uh, a higher risk or increasing risk area. So, you know, uh, drop me a line afterwards, and I'm happy to share share that. It's all about starting the conversation, and then people yeah. can then make a choice about what they want to do with it. And it's not for us to tell people it's like you know when we talk about patient counseling a lot of our work and in, in community pharmacies which i still do as we talked about is not patient counseling it's providing information 
Yeah. It's about giving someone information and, for, uh, and them having to respond to that. And if they want to respond to it, they will respond to it. If they don't, that's fine. And you can say to that person, a bit like the naloxone training that we do, okay, then don't take your naloxone now. But when you want one or if you're ready, come in and see us and we can have a chat about that. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's not about forcing interventions on people or forcing people to do things. It's about providing them with the information and, and for them to make a choice. Sorry, yeah, Jonathan. Yeah wondering no, again good. no 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 that's 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 ticked my uh, public service broadcasting box there so i'm very happy <laughs> with that. i'm very happy about that um good, good. Cu couple of questions to finish so what what do you think is the most positive impact of the pandemic because it, i must say it has been very traumatic for everyone uh, no one in the country has been untouched some obviously to a very much greater degree than others but if we could put a positive spin on it as things begin to return to normal what would you say that would be and probably within i mean you can answer it more broadly but probably within your own sphere of practice would be would be interesting okay okay well, I, th I think they the, the positive thing and, and something that we're looking to grab hold of at the moment is the change changing working practices the changing that we've made due to the pandemic mm -hmm. so uh for example you know we're, we're doing a lot more phone calls to clients we're doing consultations on online we're, we're looking at an online system at the moment so we can have face-to-face -face consultations you'll be aware or or your listeners and uh, viewers will be aware that um there is uh, there are issues around the security of some online portals so we're still not quite there we're still making sure that that we have a secure network in place for that but certainly the consultations that we've had given the client you know talking to the clients over the phone maintaining that that uh, that that way of working for the appropriate clients as we move out will will I think be uh, very important and there is a lot of, obviously you know we've had to move quite controversial earlier on from less frequent pickups I think there will be some advantages in that in that some prescribers will see that some clients can manage their own medications and can work with their own medications and can re recover as a part of that and i need to make clear here this is not me promoting a, a, a one-size-fits-all that fortnightly or weekly connection collections are good for everybody i think we have swung uh, a, a lot in that direction and that has been led by public policy and I think it will it will come back. Um, but again, supervised consumption, I don't think we'll ever be in the place where we are with supervised consumption. Again, levels are very low at the moment. They're too low. A lot of that has been driven by pharmacies stopping delivering it. And at the start of the pandemic, you know, there were major concerns, obviously, around social distancing and how you manage that interaction. And I can fully understand that. But I would like to see um, a state where, where supervised consumption is given appropriately to clients and uh, not everybody is on it. You know, we have some services where we have uh, many clients on it who who I think should be moved away from it. And I think what we were talking about earlier on, that's the reason why I think community pharmacies need to engage with, with commissioners. And we need to take this opportunity to look at what are the services we can offer and, 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 how we, um, and how we move out of this. Because another positive thing has been our relationship with the LPCs and talking with the LPCs. And one thing that I'm currently exploring um, with our LPCs that we work with is, is, is offering some online training. So I've uh, de I've uh, developed a, a menu of online training for LPCs, and I'll be working with LPCs on delivering a, a series of uh, online training sessions for uh, for for their staff as we move forward as well. So again, that's another positive. And and finally, let's let's put one more community pharmacy positive out there: the naloxone work that we're doing. I think there's, there's, there, there is the opportunity now for me as a chief pharmacist to work with our organisations and LPCs to look for uh, interventions such as naloxone distribution through the community pharmacy network, especially mm -hmm. since you know some clients have been given larger amounts of OST doses. And that may work with um, safe storage as well. We, we've never given out OST without, or larger amounts of OST or any amounts of OST without ensuring that there's safe storage and that's either us supplying boxes or confirming with the clients that they're safe storage so I think there's opportunities there in community pharmacies as well as the work that we're doing and the, the different ways of working that we've seen in our services 
Great stuff. Great stuff. Okay. I'm I'm grateful for your time. I'm going to finish. I normally ask a question around what's your advice to people, uh, uh, pharmacists joining the register, but I'm not going to, I'm going to, but I am going to tap into your experience um, to finish. So what is your advice to pharmacists given the level of uncertainty at the moment? So pharmacists individually? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay then. Well, what I would do is 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 look 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 at what you want to do as well. Is there a specialism that you want to be in? Is there an area that you want to work in? So identify if there's any particular area you want to work in. If there is, and you want to expand that, talk to your employer about how you can how you can do that, how you can support that, how they can support you um, achieve that. Sometimes your values or the direction you're going might not be um, the same as your employer. And I'm not saying that's the time to leave. I don't think there's. I don't think it's a good time to be leaving any employment at the moment. But uh, mm. you know, sometimes people will take that risk. If if there's something that you want to do and you've not got the support for your employer, I mean, certainly what I did is I did the courses myself. I you know I did my qualification with Cardiff University. I went to Bath University to do the prescribing certificate. I looked at opportunities that I could uh, I could take advantage of. In terms of substance misuse, if you're interested in substance misuse, contact your local substance misuse service. Go and spend a day with them. Spend a day in the service looking at what they do you know get that connection with them so that you can move forward with that the chemist and druggist uh, pharmacy award winner for substance misuse this year was in one of our service areas in somerset which was uh, touts pharmacy and they they had uh, they had space in their in their um, attic so they actually had clinics in there they're now part of the yeah. naloxone they're now part of the naloxone scheme and uh, one of their pharmacies be uh, became a, a prescriber and uh, I know they're working occasionally for, for substance misuse services in, in Somerset at the moment. So, you know, be clear in what you want to achieve, be clear in what you want to do. Try and get buy-in from your employer, but also engage with, uh, with the key people. Engage with key people, um, uh, uh, key people around you. And a final story, this, um, this relates to a pharmacist who, um, who actually was working in, in a corporate pharmacy in one of the areas where I had a clinic. Um, now, he phoned up about the 28-day rule. That's about, it's about five years ago. And I explained to him that the 28-day rule, is, if the appropriate day around a prescription is based on the signature of that prescription or the start date, whichever is the latest. So we had a chat about that. It so happens that that pharmacist didn't complete his 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 degree, but because he's made the connection with me and he wanted to find out more about substance misuse, and he came to actually have a look in the local services. Even though he didn't get where he wanted in pharmacy, he's now one of our key players in terms of managing the prescription administration and the pharmacy network in our particular service. So yeah. again, that that's probably um, an aside to where we talk in terms of pharmacists. But if he never made that connection and never did that, he would have been in a very difficult position. But he's got he's got a good job now within our service and plays a critical role in delivering pharmaceutical services in our particular service. So that that's a kind of a, a little uh, a vignette, I suppose, for the benefit of <clears throat> of working with the service, talking and showing you're interested and taking that next step. Brilliant. Great way to finish. And uh, look, pleasure speaking to you, Graham. Um, we've never met, but when, when lockdown finishes, uh, we'll, uh, we'll certainly try and uh, look out for each other, hopefully at conferences and stuff like that. Yeah, go out, go out for a drink, Jonathan. We, we very possibly <laughs> will. We very possibly will. But it's right. only, it's half 11, so it's it's a bit early for uh, for moderate drinking on a, on a Tuesday. I'm oh, <laughs> yes, definite, definitely. Time for my lunch. Right. Great. Lovely. All the Great. best. Nice to talk to you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Time. Cheers, Jonathan. Bye now. Bye-bye, Graham. Bye. -bye,